Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Boulder Weekly is being brought to you in part by Weissman Family Dental in Boulder, Colorado. For over 25 years, Weissman Family Dental has been providing high-quality dentistry. They offer regular checkups, emergency care, and a wide range of specialty services. They also have staff that speak Spanish. If you are looking for a new dentist, find them at WeissmanFamilyDental.com or call them at 303-494-0101 and tell them Audio Information Network of Colorado sent you. Thank you for joining us for the Thursday, May 12th edition of the Boulder Weekly. My name is Orion Rooney. Today, we will be reading the following articles. The Iron Law of Prohibition by Will Brenza. The Secret Secret is Out by Emma Athena. Hands on the Wheel by Adam Perry. Studio Project Reminds Visitors Animal Rights Are No Joke by Matt Mainpaw. The Cure for Retirement by John Lindorf. A Brewery from Another World by Matt Mainpaw. News. The Iron Law of Prohibition. As fentanyl deaths surge, the war on drugs is alive and well in Colorado. By Will Brenza. Jake Bukovich was at home alone when he took the pill. It was a Tuesday night in Boulder. The 21-year-old University of Colorado student had just finished his summer internship and had the night off to relax with his new puppy. He had the house to himself, and he had a small bag of oxycodone M30 pills he'd bought for just such an occasion. He took one to settle in for what should have been an uneventful evening. The next day, however, in Eagle, Colorado, Jake's mother, Carol, answered the door to a pair of grim-looking police officers. They greeted her, confirmed she was Jake Bukovich's mother, and informed her that her son was dead. His roommate had found him around 10 a.m. when he'd returned home to the puppy barking from behind Jake's closed door. It was completely shocking, Carol recalls, her voice cracking. Jake was a star athlete at Battle Mountain High School, and he had a lot of friends at CU, where he was entering his senior year as a computer science major. Carol never had a reason to expect that awful moment. Jake's autopsy wouldn't come back for days, but the police and coroner knew almost immediately what had happened, she says. They'd seen enough fentanyl deaths in Boulder to recognize the signs. The cause of death on his death certificate was listed as accidental overdose. I can't even tell you how angry that makes me, Carol says. Jake took one pill. One pill is not an overdose. That was in 2021, and like the majority of the 800-plus Coloradans that died from fentanyl that year, or the 40,000 others across the country, Jake had no idea he was even in possession of fentanyl, let alone that he was taking a pill that would take his life. Mitchell Gomez, an executive with Dance Safe, a drug testing advocacy and education organization, agrees that deaths from counterfeit pills like Jake's shouldn't be considered overdose deaths in the classic sense. They're overdoses in the medical, technical sense, Gomez says, 
but the vast majority of these deaths are people who are really being poisoned. Aiming to address this crisis, Colorado's HB 22-1326, or the Fentanyl Accountability and Prevention Bill, moved to Governor Paulus's desk on May 11, 2022, for its final signature before becoming law. The bill, one of the state's most controversial and closely followed policies of the year, would make simple possession of fentanyl, or any drug cut with it, a felony offense instead of a misdemeanor. During its third reading on May 6th, Colorado's Democrat-controlled state Senate voted to make it even more punitive by taking out an important guardrail that protected users like Jake, unknowingly in possession of fentanyl. The House Appropriations Committee approved HB 22-1326 on an 8-3 vote. Governor Paulus now has 30 days to sign it into law. I know people don't think this is a perfect bill, Rep. Alec Garnett, D. Denver, House Speaker and sponsor of the bill in a statement said, adding, a perfect bill isn't possible. Among Garnett's co-sponsors for HB 22-1326 are Sen. Brittany Peterson, D. Lakewood, and Rep. Leslie Harrod, D. Denver, who was also behind the similarly controversial HB 21-1317 regulating marijuana concentrates bill. See Weed Between the Lines, Concentrated Regulation, July 1, 2021. In 2019, Colorado passed HB 19-1263, reclassifying quantities under 4 grams of nearly all Schedule One or Two substances as a misdemeanor rather than a felony offense. See News, High Country Defelonization, September 9, 2019. It was widely regarded as a progressive step toward ending the drug war in this state, reducing criminal penalties that often target users instead of distributors. According to the Colorado Criminal Justice Reform Coalition's CCJRC recent Fentanyl in Colorado report, between January 2020 and January 2022, more than 31,000 drug cases in Colorado were filed against low-income individuals. Of those cases, 75% were for simple drug possession or for sharing drugs for personal use. Only 9% were for low-level dealing, 9% for mid-level dealing, and 6% for high-level dealing. The best way to treat drug addiction is not with a felony conviction, but rather to connect the person with treatment, Boulder District Attorney Michael Doherty told Boulder Weekly in a 2019 interview about HB 19-1263. This new bill, HB 22-1326, would largely undo what HB 21-1263 accomplished. It would reclassify possession of just one gram of any substance laced with even trace amounts of fentanyl as a felony. Prior to its third reading in the state senate, the bill included an important provision to ensure the bill wouldn't target users who'd unwittingly been sold fentanyl. It would have required prosecutors to prove that someone knew or had reasonable cause to believe that they were in possession of fentanyl-laced substances. If they were unaware that fentanyl was present, the possession charges could have been dropped to a misdemeanor. But on May 6th, less than a week before the legislative session ended and during the bill's third reading, the state senate voted 18-17 to 17 to remove the knowingly provision meaning any user unwittingly caught with between 1 and 4 grams of fentanyl-laced cocaine, MDMA, heroin, 
pills, or any other substance automatically gets a felony charge. If convicted, that will haunt their record for years or decades. The House Appropriations Committee approved this change when it passed a bill on Wednesday. There are some positive aspects of HB 1326. The bill requires some felony offenders to be placed in a residential treatment facility for additional treatment. It expands the entities eligible to receive opiate antagonists, like naloxone. It requires jails to provide opiate antagonists and prescribe medication for opiate use disorders when certain individuals are released, and permits schools to acquire and maintain opiate detection tests on premise. The bill would also provide $20 million for the Antagonist Naloxone Bulk Purchase Fund, appropriate $6 million to fund the Harm Reduction Grant Program Cash Fund, and allocate $300,000 to supply opiate detection kits to eligible entities. Proponents of the bill, like Garnett and Denver Police Chief Raul Pazon, argue that this tough-on-crime approach is the most effective way to mitigate the fentanyl crisis spiraling out of control in Colorado. However, drug reform advocates like Gomez are adamant that legislation like HB 1326 will only make things worse. As you increase drug enforcement penalties, what that does inevitably is encourage people who are doing drug transportation to switch to more potent analogs, he says. It's called the Iron Law of Prohibition. Coined by former NORML director Richard Cowan in 1986, the Iron Law of Prohibition suggests that when law enforcement intensifies, the potency of prohibited substances increases, or, as Cowan put it, the harder the enforcement, the harder the drugs. Gomez likens the situation to alcohol prohibition. It was nearly impossible to find beer and wine between 1920 and 1933. Bootleggers were risking their freedom, and there was far more value in running gin, moonshine, and whiskey instead of lower ABV beverages. The reason fentanyl became so prevalent is because it's easier to smuggle, Gomez says. When border enforcement goes up, dose per smuggled shoebox becomes the primary metric of concern for smugglers. Fentanyl is part of the third wave of America's opioid crisis. The first wave began in the late 1990s, as opioid prescriptions began increasing with the rise of pill mill pharmacies. Opioid overdose deaths began rising too. The second wave began in 2010, as many states started restricting access and addicted users became unable to get prescriptions. They started switching to heroin as a result. This third wave began in 2013. As more potent synthetic analogs began hitting the scene, fentanyl started spilling over into other street drugs. Black market suppliers realized massive economic opportunities were opening, and so they started cutting synthetic opioids across the U.S. drug supply. Overdose deaths began exploding across the continent, along with the drug supplier's revenue per smuggled kilogram. According to Statista.com, as of 2017, the price of one kilogram of pure fentanyl for a drug trafficking organization, DTO, was about 4150 U.S. dollars. The revenue generated from one kilogram of fentanyl by a DTO is estimated to equal about 1.6 million U.S. dollars. 
Fentanyl is 50 times stronger than street heroin, explains the CCJRC's Fentanyl in Colorado report. Its onset is extremely rapid, and the effects last for only 30 to 60 minutes. Just 2 milligrams of fentanyl can be a lethal dose. 1 kilogram is enough to kill 500,000 people. And the Drug Enforcement Agency claims that about 42% of the black market pills they test contain at least 2 milligrams of fentanyl and up to 5. The very same day that Jake Bukovic was discovered in Boulder after taking one fentanyl-laced pill, the Gore Range Narcotics Interdiction Team, Granite, stopped a vehicle on I-70 just outside of Eagle, where Jake grew up, confiscating 70 pounds of counterfeit oxycodone M30 pills laced with fentanyl, a haul of over 30 million pills, just like the one that Jake took. Those smugglers were going to prison no matter what, with or without HB 221326. But under the bill's current language, Jake would have been subject to a felony charges too. Even though he only had a few fentanyl-laced pills and no idea what was actually in them. I go back and forth on criminalization, Jake's mother Carol says. I do think that if you're distributing fentanyl in any way, shape, or form, that you should be held accountable. But the police can't be chasing every user. It needs to be the distributor or the manufacturer. If you just have fentanyl and you get caught with it, then suddenly you're a criminal. That's not going to change anything. Terry Hurst, the policy coordinator for CCJRC, agrees with that sentiment. You can't arrest your way out of a tainted drug supply, she says. Especially when policymakers are ignoring evidence and acting on outdated myths about drug regulation. Our focus was to really try to dispel some of those myths that are out there and try to provide pragmatic approaches for how to deal with the overdose crisis, and fentanyl in particular, Hearst says of the CCJRC's recent Fentanyl in Colorado report. A lot of what's in this report is really focused on what we believe works to save people's lives. For the report, CCJRC used data from the Centers for Disease Control, CDC, on state overdoses, comparing overdose rates by state. The first question they look at in the report, do states that classify drug possession as a misdemeanor have higher rates of overdose deaths than those that classify it as a felony? There is no correlation between drug overdose deaths and the severity of penalties for simple possession, the report reads accompanied by a graph and table showing the data. Overdose death rates have risen throughout the country in recent years, including in states where simple possession is a felony. The report also asks if increasing criminal penalties for fentanyl distribution reduces the supply of fentanyl in a community. Again, the study found the answer was no. Incarcerating drug dealers has little or no impact on disrupting drug supplies because the drug market is dynamic, the report reads. It responds to the demand for drugs by replacing imprisoned sellers with either new recruits or increased drug selling by existing dealers, which is known as the replacement effect. The CCJRC has a number of suggestions on how to mitigate the issue. Its report starts by recommending a drastic increase in access to naloxone, the life-saving nasal spray that can treat a narcotic overdose in emergency situations. Every Coloradan has a prescription for naloxone, brand name Narcan, 
and can purchase it at a Walgreens, or go search for a national organization like Naloxone for All and find a distribution point where you can pick it up for free. CCJRC also recommends dramatically expanding the number and types of entities eligible to access these medications, and even installing naloxone vending machines where high-risk populations might gather. Carol Bukovich has also become an ardent advocate for naloxone in the months since Jake's death. She took a training in Narcan administration and is looking into how she can help distribute it to others. She's also started speaking alongside Maggie Seldine with High Rockies Harm Reduction, helping to spread awareness and educate Colorado's mountain communities about the fentanyl crisis. Seldine says naloxone should be as commonplace as automated external defibrillators, AEDs, or fire extinguishers. Narcan should be everywhere, she says. It should be in every dorm and every college. It should be in every college house. It should be at bars, it should be at restaurants, it should be at Red Rocks, her list continues. It should be a tool people can use, and it should be that common. The CCJRC report also recommends focusing federal stimulus dollars toward drug prevention, harm reduction, treatment, and recovery services. Expanding the Good Samaritan law to include the crime of drug sharing increasing the number of harm reduction organizations, making fentanyl testing strips and other drug checking resources free or cheap and easily attainable, advocating for realistic and evidence-based education programs, allowing overdose prevention sites for communities that want and need them, and enacting safe supply programs that would provide prescribed medications as an alternative to the toxic illegal drug supply. Some progressive drug policy advocates say broad drug decriminalization bills similar to the Drug Decriminalization and Addiction Treatment Initiative that Oregon passed in 2020 are one of the best ways to address the problem. But Gomez with Dance Safe would go even a step further. He points out that simple decriminalization still leaves the production of drugs in the hands of black market suppliers. Decriminalization is not enough, he says. I think what we're talking about here very explicitly as the only way to end fentanyl deaths is legal drug supply. Drug overdoses are inarguably a public health crisis in the U.S., accounting for over 100,000 deaths in 2021. Gun deaths, 20,726. Traffic deaths, 31,720. And suicides, 1,859, combined, hardly equate to half of that. Arrests and felony charges aren't going to stop demand for or use of these substances, Gomez argues, as evidenced by more than 50 years of failed drug policy. Nor is fentanyl going to extract itself from the black market drug supply now. It will only be replaced by other, even more potent analogs like carfentanil or nidazines. The only choice society really has is... How do we want to control the distribution and use of these drugs, Gomez asks. And for some reason, the United States has decided that all of the control for this health crisis should belong to criminal gangs. Real solutions are on the table, Gomez says. Legal regulation is a real possibility. It just requires a cultural shift and the right kind of political will to accomplish. Fentanyl deaths are a choice that we're making as a society, he says. 
we've decided to allow these deaths in a very real sense in order to continue the policies of prohibition, which have very demonstrably failed. Until that societal change is realized and the political will mustered, advocacy organizations and activists will continue their fight. Dance Safe will continue offering volunteer-run drug testing services at music events, selling testing strips and running education campaigns around the U.S., promoting safe and responsible drug usage. CCJRC will continue to advocate for more progressive drug policies in Colorado, fighting for criminal justice reform and advocating for more progressive drug policies. And Carol Bukovic says she's going to continue telling Jake's story and sharing her truth in the hopes that it could save even one life. Jake didn't have to die, she says, and others don't either. If he'd known not to take the pill while he was home alone, if a roommate had been with him and had naloxone, if he'd had the right kind of testing strips readily available, or even if she'd known how to have an honest, realistic conversation about the life and death risk of using street drugs in an age of fentanyl with her son, maybe things would be different. But, she says, she can't think about what-ifs. I think it really begins with education and conversation, Carol says. This isn't someone who's addicted to and overusing drugs. This is your neighbor. This is your kid. It's your kid's friend. Contact the author with comments or questions at wbrendza at boulderweekly.com. Feature. The secret secret is out. Sobo, that's S-E-W-B-O, brings fresh fabrics and sewing education to South Boulder. By Emma Athena. I knock at the Martin Acres house, and Jordan Martindale opens the screen, welcoming me in. Behind her is the kitchen, which blends openly with the living room, and across the countertop reaching into the space like a pier, she's arranged and folded fabrics in a buffet of colors, patterns, shapes, and textures. On the kitchen table is a sewing machine, and she motions for me to set mine there, an older machine I'd bought off Facebook Marketplace during the first wave of COVID-19 lockdowns, when I contributed to the 850% surge in US Google searches for the term sewing machines near me. I wasn't alone here. Colorado ranked sixth among the states with the most searches for that phrase, behind Oregon and Louisiana in the top positions. I feel like there's a resurgence in making in general, Martindale tells me, about 30 minutes into our sewing lesson. We're bending over my machine, watching me thread the sharp needle contraption on my own for the first time. We were so starved for entertainment, we had to create entertainment inside of our house. But Martindale went a step beyond, creating an entertainment studio-slash-lab inside her family's South Boulder home. By the beginning of 2022, she was ready to launch Sobo, an educational sewing space and boutique fabric shop she now runs from the kitchen table, though a brick-and-mortar store capitalizes next year's plans. For now, the living room as a business and classroom space is fitting. The pandemic really blessed society in that way. It helped us reconnect with home in a different way, she says. The domestic sphere, we have a different relationship with it now. Martindale is a pattern person at heart. She grew up in the South Bay of Los Angeles with a costume designer mom and a community college professor dad. When she left home, she was an aspiring actress headed to New York City. 
She got a job at Anthropology to help pay the bills, and it was there tending to intricate retail displays that she fell in love with fabrics. She was a natural, too. For ten years, she floated up the company ranks before quitting the big city life and embarking on a mountain-focused journey that landed her in Boulder with her husband and two young children. Now, with Sobo, she plans to serve Boulder fresh fabrics. She understands her competition in Boulder is Joanne Fabric and Crafts, but still differentiates that chain as a need-based store, as she strives to create an inspiration-based store, where people not only stop for supplies, but also ideas, encouragement, insights, and the spark of creativity. Other sewing and fabric shops in the county, like Lyons Quilting, Studio Bernina, and Elfried's Fine Fabrics, cater the sewing population with bulk and high-end offerings, and Martindale sees an opportunity to fill in the market with fabrics more resonant with modern projects. Her other competition, of course, is the internet, an online beast I can't compete with, she admits. But she can indeed offer something it can't, tangibility, the burst of understanding that physical contact or proximity helps release. I'd tried guiding myself through YouTube tutorials on how to use my machine, but I'd never been able to get the stitches right, nor was I able to understand the whys of what went where. Within 20 minutes at Martindale's table, it was evident the hours of fidgeting I'd done on my own could be reclassified as a waste. She breaks down steps into bite-sized pieces, motions for me to repeat things over again. I fumble my way through some parts, and she answers my questions with a smile or a funny story. When we get to lining up the fabric to slip under the needle, she says, in response to my doubts that I'd cut wholly symmetrical pieces. If they're not perfectly exact, it's totally fine. What is perfection, anyway? She laughs at herself, knowing exactly who she's kidding. I'm raising a perfectionist. I am a perfectionist. My mom, who is the worst, no wonder. When I'm sewing, I'm like, that's fine. She's like, we have to rip it out and start over. And true to form, Martindale only encouraged me to rip out one of my seams when the fabric bunched up and went crooked. We laughed it out, and it was easy to redo. Sewing, she says, has brought layers of joy to her life. She's excited to spread its benefits far and wide. Claire Hunter, author of Threads of Life, A History of the World Through the Eye of a Needle, considers sewing social, emotional, and political significance. The calming effects of sewing can help people express and heal themselves, she writes in an article for The Guardian, describing how women in World War II prisoner of war camps sewed privately, reclaiming solitude and individual expression among the overcrowded and claustrophobic atmosphere of a camp where they were registered as a number. Through their embroidery, they made time for themselves, and through their sewn autographs, they asserted their identity. Hunter highlights studies exalting the relationship between creativity and well-being, especially the benefits, particularly for those suffering from mental illness, of the mesmeric immersion in crafts as a release from inner turmoil. In one example, she cites World War I doctors who got shell-shocked soldiers to embroider as a way of healing mental scars, and it provided a surprisingly effective way of steadying their hands and settling their minds. Martindale has seen these effects play out before her eyes. Sewing is a calming antidote. It's the same for children, she says. 
When they do something like this, their brains aren't overly stimulated. It's very simple and so rewarding. Sobo's themed summer camps are for children ages seven and up. Watching them grow proud of themselves and feel a sense of accomplishment is rewarding in itself, Martindale says. She's watched kids transform over the course of one class, arriving quiet and shy, leaving in smiles with new friends. Sports gives kids that opportunity, but does it give that to them on an individual basis for anyone to feel that way? Martindale teaches adults like me, too, and I have to agree. Anybody can learn to sew, she confesses. It's the secret secret. Sewing is the easiest thing on the planet. At the end of our lesson, I'm holding a reversible cloth bag with a crisply boxed bottom, perfect for dressing a potted plant or to use as a cute catch-all for the electronic cords typically bunched on my floor. I text a photo of my handiwork to a friend in another time zone, who also picked up sewing during the pandemic, and when she alights it with hearts, I feel what Claire Hunter writes too in how, in our social media age, as we become more physically isolated from each other, sewing is a safeguard to isolation, a way to stay in touch with each other, hand and mind working in harmony to convey what lies in our hearts, for me and others. It sustains not just a sense of self, but of belonging. Contact the author at eathena at boulderweekly.com. Buzz. Hands on the wheel. Poised for breakout, boulder-born Pink Fuzz focuses on forging its own path. By Adam Perry. For all its energy and immediacy, Pink Fuzz's 2021 release, Live at Silo Sound, is the product of more than a decade of hard work by the boulder-born hard rock outfit. After meeting as students at Foothills Elementary and forming a band as teenagers, Pink Fuzz has cut its teeth in the Colorado music scene, releasing one searing full-length studio album along with Live at Silo Sound. The trio now looks poised to explode onto the national scene like one of Kerouac's fabulous Roman candles exploding across the stars. Charismatic bassist and singer Lulu Dimitro explained by phone recently that the seamless musical eruption of Live at Silo Sound is the result of she and her brother, John, putting in countless hours, along with Phnom drummer Forrest Raup at the height of the pandemic. We had been practicing so much, she explains. We had been writing and practicing all the time. We were feeling really tight. I think it's a great representation of us live, especially because you can hear everything. We were able to mix it how we'd like people to hear us when we're playing live. A lot of our fans have said, we're so happy we can hear the lyrics. That's been really nice for us. John and I have really pretty voices when we sing together. I think they're really beautiful, and it lends itself well to our music live when you can hear it. If you can't, you're losing that aspect of what our band is. The trio, which has been touring since the Dimitros were teenagers, more recently released Fading Away, a two-song EP of surprisingly mellow, heartfelt tunes driven by acoustic guitar. One of the tracks, Jake's Turn, is a sweet, slowed-down version of Turn, from Pink Fuzz's 2018 debut Speed Demon. We had a friend pass away last year unexpectedly, a childhood friend named Jake, Dimitro says. 
Turn was his favorite song of ours, so John reworked the lyrics and we took the acoustic version because it felt better for what the situation was. It felt really good to record it. We all grew up together, and I know it was really emotional and hard for John to do. And I think that you can hear that it's got a lot of heart in it. It was definitely a more emotional work for all of us, she says. I felt like the right move was to take it in that direction, because we all like that kind of music. We don't want people to think we're just loud and fast all the time. We've got a little more depth than that. Pink Fuzz is definitely associated with the motorhead double whammy of fast and loud. But unlike some of the bands that inspired the Dimitros, their music is anything but loose, especially with all-star drummer Raup behind them. The mellow acoustic releases certainly reveal the band's range and depth. But Live at Silo reveals a mature, polished group that almost sounds like its members sold their souls to the devil at the crossroads in the years since it was an underage, baby-faced crew jamming at now-defunct boulder pubs like the No Name Bar and the Lazy Dog. A lot of the reason that we practice so hard is that we're constantly trying to bridge the gap of what you want to make and what you are making, Dimitro says. For us, it feels like the more we practice, the closer we get to exactly what we want to make, and I think that's true of our newer material. It's getting so much closer to everything we want to make. Incessant practice, in reality, is what catapulted Pink Fuzz forward musically, as well as the rampant touring it was known for before the pandemic. Dimitra says that getting back on the road has lit a fire under the trio again as well. Our first jaunt back was out over the summer, she says. We played a motorcycle festival called Bat City Tire Fire down in Austin in the middle of July. It was kind of overwhelming just from coming out of COVID, seeing how many people were out, but also just, wow. Everybody really wants to see music now. It kind of really gave us a confidence boost that people were ready to rock. John, one year older than Lulu and thus lovingly referred to as an Irish twin, shares front-person duties with his sister in Pink Fuzz, which she estimates has performed in 30 states. John's iconic braids and black motorcycle cap have made him instantly recognizable when he's out and about in the Colorado music scene, or just working on his car on a sunny boulder day. But it's his rapidly increasing guitar skills that are really making him recognizable these days. Yeah, it's incredible. It's so cool, Lulu responds when I ask what it's like seeing her brother leap forward from riffing to shredding on guitar, as if he found a power-up in a video game. Sometimes we're on stage, and I'll look over at John, and I can't help but smile at him so big. I'm just like, you're so cool. It's incredible. And John taught me how to play bass. He's an unbelievable bass player, too. It's so cool seeing him become the guitarist he is, the voicing through his solos and the way he writes now. It's unique to him, and that's a huge achievement. He's getting into this crazy zone. He's got something special. But John practices every day for hours a day, and he doesn't let that up. That is 100% why he is crazy good. The three members of Pink Fuzz have been playing together for nearly a decade, even though they're still all 20-somethings. They have day jobs in addition to their passionate practicing and touring, but are all in some capacity or another connected to music, Dimitro says, either teaching music or working as session musicians. 
Pink Fuzz has taken giant steps musically, developing a career on the road with a fiercely DIY independent ethos. Demetra says that could change soon, but the group is being very careful, because handing in the proverbial wheel to the wrong people could result in Pink Fuzz being driven in the wrong direction or even in a ditch. That's something we've been really cautious of, she stresses, because we've been doing this ourselves for so long, and it's really scary to give up control. We've talked to people in the past about what building our team would look like, and you really want to choose the right people that obviously have your best interests at heart, but also share the vision of what you see yourself doing. I think that for us, we're trying to stay true to the things we believe in and how we want to put our art out into the world. I think we're looking for a hybrid of us keeping our hands on the wheel and not just relinquishing all control to some conglomerate with some big idea of what they want us to do, she concludes. We have a pretty strong vision for what we want our career to be and where we see our future going. Live at Silo Sound presents one hell of a strong vision for Pink Fuzz's future. It's just the way we sound, Demetro says. The only thing that's different is that there's a lot more energy when we're feeding off of a crowd. Email comments or questions to editorial at boulderweekly.com. Art and Culture Studio Project Reminds Visitors Animals' Rights Are No Joke by Matt Mainpaugh A multicolored snake twists up the stairwell of the Firehouse Art Center, some sections of its body exposed, revealing a spine and heart, its fangs bared. A combination of prints and stencil work, the project is the result of a collaboration between the Boulder Museum of Contemporary Art BMOCA, and the Firehouse Art Center, called the Studio Project, aimed at helping student artists tackle social issues under the tutelage of professional artist mentors. Past iterations of the Studio Project have addressed the environmental impact of fashion and shown gratitude to essential workers in the pandemic, among other topics over the past several years. I want the students to talk about issues and how it affects them and their peers, says Elaine Waterman, executive director of the Firehouse Art Center. So whatever they're passionate about, that's the direction we end up going. According to Waterman, engaging students in issues that matter to them is a key part of the project. This time around, the high school students kept circling back to animal rights, food insecurity, and ethical husbandry. Once the subject matter is locked in, students are tasked with finding an artist whose work reflects the theme and issues they've chosen. Students this semester chose Denver artist Max Coleman, who combines classic Audubon-style illustrations with more modern street art aesthetics to address environmental issues, social justice, and animal rights. Ian Giles, a junior at Stanford Online High School, was looking for local opportunities for art after moving to Boulder from New York. The biggest appeal, Giles says, is getting to collaborate with a working artist and learn from their experience and not just a school curriculum. I think there's a disconnect between academia and industry or working artists. I think both are valuable, but I think this program does a good job of teaching us things from a practical perspective, Giles says. Coleman himself is a joyful and spirited individual. 
Even just a brief moment, as he demonstrates brush technique for a mural in the stairwell of the Firehouse Art Center, he radiates enthusiasm for the teens he's working with. His enthusiasm for his own work seems boundless, gladly digging into the inspirations and meanings as he flips through a stack of sketchbooks filled cover to cover with art. His work juxtaposes beautiful landscapes or wildlife with darker subjects, much of which is influenced by his upbringing surrounded by Jewish culture and religious iconography. Judaism teaches that we should aspire to leave the world a better for your life having been in it, Coleman says. To me, that always meant being kind to the things that, for some reason, people usually aren't, which I've always identified as animals and plants, he explains. Using murals, paintings, and detailed illustrations as a call to action helps Coleman guide his work and the create with intention, he says. The goal is to have the work shift people's perspective, even just a little bit. The studio project is an opportunity for Coleman to share his thoughts on art and his practical experience with the business side of art, with an eager audience. The experience has been incredibly rewarding, he says particularly as his first time in a teaching role. He has a really open way of sharing that works really well with the program, because he wants to impart all of the things in his mind to these kids, Waterman says. Waterman says that the students are already talented artists, but the studio project encourages them to explore and develop their own parameters and deadlines for the project as well. More than just the practical experience of learning project management as artists, Waterman wants the students to consider the what and why of creating as they step into the world beyond high school. Lily Gutierrez, a sophomore at Boulder High School, says the independence and collaboration has been challenging in the best way. The experience has helped her reflect on her art and what it can be outside of classroom assignments when she's not being told what to do. It's been fun to practice with that, especially with all these different artists, she says. It's been fun. I like seeing everyone's art. I really like Coleman. He's good at teaching us in an interesting way. Both Giles and Gutierrez hope the art can make a stronger impact than just words alone, that the mural can inspire considerations and conversations to anyone who passes by. The final mural won't be unveiled until June 13th, when the We're People Too, No Joke exhibition is unveiled at the firehouse. Prior to that, BMOCA will host some of the studio project work June 5th through 8th, with the reception the evening of June 8th. Email the author at mattmainpaw at gmail.com. Nibbles. The Cure for Retirement. How a chef and a grower are bringing fine homegrown fare to a Boulder organic farm stand. By John Lendorf. Jim Smaler is a true restaurant legend. As the longest-serving chef in recent Boulder history, he cooked for an unheard-of four decades at the Boulder Cork. Diners appreciated his devotion to sourcing fresh produce and seafood, exploring southwestern cuisine, and serving the juiciest prime rib. Smaler recently retired, and one afternoon this spring, he stopped to visit with an old friend, Farmer Ann Cure. I've known Anne for years. I got a lot of my produce from her, and I just live up the street, he says. 
Jim walked over to me and said hi, Kira calls. I said, do you want to work at the stand? On the day we meet, the duo talks near the Cure Organic Farm stand at the corner of Valmont Road and 75th Street. Bees hum around a row of hives. Jerry the goat frees himself from his pen and wanders over as customers peruse garden plant starts. Chicken and duck eggs, greens, overwintered carrots, and turnips and various grass-fed beef cuts. The position Smaler accepted comes with responsibilities to work at the stand and produce ready-to-eat food using the produce, meats, and other ingredients available from Cure and other farms and ranches. I thought about it for a couple of days and said, yep, it sounded like fun, he says. That was before he had looked at the kitchen space that the farm rents in Boulder. The first day I walked into the kitchen and said, oh boy, we're starting from scratch. There's no pantry to work out of. I've got three induction burners and a small oven. There's not much storage space, Smaler says. Yet, the fine dining chef went right back to work. One recent week, he made smoked brisket as well as carne asada in red chili sauce. For another Saturday market, he composed a hearty soup using local pinto beans, smoked ham hocks, carrots, and chilies. His red and green chili and cheese vegetarian enchiladas sold up almost immediately. To fuel passing bicyclists, a longtime baker contributes goodies such as chocolate chip cookies, chocolate cupcakes, using Cure's sweet carrots, lemon focaccia using Smaler's recipe, and Caribbean cornbread made from Aspen Moon Farm heirloom cornmeal, jack cheese, and pineapple. Smaler had been serving farm-to-table fare at the Boulder Cork decades before the term popped up on restaurant menus, but he's not a fan of the term. For me, it had to do with finding great quality ingredients wherever they came from. This is real farm-to-table food, he says. He's always been an avid farmer's market shopper and noted for his big restaurant garden, which he still maintains despite retirement. After decades of working in that well-equipped and staffed kitchen, the chef has been forced to adjust to a new reality. Working by yourself in a small kitchen is hard. It takes time cleaning up. You have to wash the pots. It takes time to pack up everything and haul it because there's no space to leave it there. Making 84 enchiladas takes a lot more time there than at the cork, Smaler says. But the customers who have discovered that Smaler is on hand on Saturdays are highly enthusiastic and grateful for his continued labor at the sink, cutting board, stove, and oven. Your pork adobo, oh my god, it's so good, one customer says. Another asks, are you going to do ribs again soon? When you have a chef at the cash register, instant and enthusiastic advice is available on how to prepare those turnips or beans or meal cuts. Smaler notes that one of his favorite parts of being a chef was coming out of the kitchen and talking to guests about the food. In watching Smaler talking to customers, Cure smiles. He lights up when he talks about food. This is a perfect fit, she says. The coming week's menus will evolve as the farm catches up from a cool, windy, and dry spring and starts producing a bevy of organic vegetables. The tomatoes are coming, Smaler says, along with fava beans, snap peas, and okra. This has been interesting in a life-changing way, dealing with a new and different challenge. It's something I'll stick with, he says. 
That day, Smaler took home green garlic, green onions, spinach, and eggs from the farm stand. He made fresh ravioli for dinner with his wife, served with a green salad and a bottle of red wine. Local Food News National Association of Letter Carriers Stamp Out Hunger Food Drive is May 14th. Leave non-perishable food in a bag by your mailbox to be delivered to local food banks. Westminster's new Crestone Bakery offers a full range of 100% gluten-free goodies, including soft pretzels and cinnamon rolls. Good Eats Grill has closed in Longmont after almost eight years in business. Coming attractions. Cooper Wine Bar, 600 Longs Peak Ave, Longmont. Lucille's Crayol Cafe, 554 Briggs Street, Erie. Chicken Jacks, 1125 13th Street, Boulder. The folks behind Fine Artisan Pizzeria, Fringe, will open the local in the former Murphy's North Space at North Boulder. Words to chew on. No reasonable consumer would see the entire product label, reading the words Frosted Strawberry Pop-Tarts next to a picture of a toaster pastry coated in frosting, and reasonably expect that fresh strawberries would be the sole ingredient in the product. From a recent ruling by U.S. District Judge Andrew Carter. John Lendorf hosts Radio Nibbles Thursdays on KGNU. Listen to podcasts at news.kgnu.org. Email with questions or comments to nibbles at boulderweekly.com. Drink. A Brewery from Another World by Matt Mainpaw. Just across the Weld County line, there is an outpost. It's a little bit of Mos Eisley Cantina and a little bit of David Lynch's Arrakis in a brewery you might find on Deep Space Nine. An interstellar brew pub for extraterrestrials to enjoy the finest Terran wares before space travelers move on to their next destination. But after sampling Outworld Brewing's Belgian beers, visitors will need an interstellar rideshare. Step through the doors of Outworld Brewing in East Longmont, and some classic funk and soul plays over the speakers, while Star Trek episodes play on the TVs behind the bar. Though the exterior could be any run-of-the-mill office complex, the interior design of the brew pub pays homage to classic sci-fi with cozy booths and steel space station chic. Gone are the days where geeks and nerds are stereotyped as soda swillers who never leave the house. With Star Trek, Star Wars, and the Marvel films continuing to reign supreme in modern pop culture, the geek revival is more present than ever. Brian Fuller, one of the co-owners and co-founders of Outworld Brewing, alongside his brother, sister, and nephew, says the connection with the brewery and nerd culture is easy to make. If you look at most sci-fi epics, there's a place where people go for a drink in almost every one, he explains. Wherever people congregate, meet, talk, or do deals, there are libations of some sort of cabin space. Fuller was emphatic that the whole concept, from the beers to the space and the fiction Outworld is building up around its interstellar outpost, is a group effort. After officially opening its doors in January 2020, the pandemic introduced a whole new set of complications. But the Outworld family didn't let that slow them down. Instead, they continued to tinker with brews and fine-tune the space until the world was ready for the sort of social space they envisioned at the beginning. 
Inspired by European beer halls where everyone socializes together, Fuller and his family want Outworld to become a sort of space where everyone winds up friends at the end of the night, regardless of who they came in with. We wanted to have something different, a more immersive experience, Fuller says. Our idea was to have someone dressed as a Klingon walk by and spill someone's beer with a grunt, where everyone goes, whoa, and have people enjoy the time there. Solid vibes and a unique atmosphere aren't the only stellar thing at Outworld. The family-owned operation also offers a beer list that strikes a balance between classic and adventurous. Predominantly offering Belgian-style beers, the brews are clean and balanced on a brew list with names paying homage to sci-fi properties. The Galactic Banditos is a Mexican-style lager that is light and easy to drink, with an appealing yeast bread note on the finish. A variation on the theme, the Green Ring Nebula adds Pueblo green chilies to the lager, giving it a robust and earthy quality without the heat. Outworld calls the Galactic Banditos an archetype beer, brewed true to style without much variation, if it's a Marzen, a triple, or a wit beer. And from what this writer sampled, they hit the mark. For brews that venture beyond, voyagers, drinkers can expect a delightful challenge. Of note, the Owen Kali is a barrel-aged Belgian pale ale inspired by the classic horse feather cocktail. Brewed with ginger and lemon, the pale ale is aged two months in bourbon barrels, with a result that is tart and bright, with just a hint of spice while still maintaining a session-worthy 5.6% ABV. The love of nerd culture and all things sci-fi and fantasy isn't limited to decor or beer names. Outworld Brewing hosts regular Pokemon Go meetings and movie nights, as well as offering space for tabletop players to meet up for Dungeons & Dragons. Greyhaven's Philosophy hosts meetings regularly, and Outworld has become one of the homes for the front-range Star Trek fan community, USS Tiburon. If you're looking for some beers and a unique atmosphere, there's no better time to check out Outworld Brewing than the upcoming Cosplay for a Cause Masquerade on June 4th. The family-friendly event will have food and a variety of activities throughout the evening, including themed food offerings and beverages, along with panels, trivia, and a costume contest. The festivities double as a fundraiser to benefit Greyhaven's philosophy. Email the author at mattmainpot at gmail.com. Thank you again for joining us for this week's edition of the Boulder Weekly, and my name is Orion Rooney.